Let's begin to reconvene. Let's go ahead and reconvene. Um, this is the beginning of session four. You shall not make for yourself an idol. In this session, we take up a set of issues regarding the interpretation of the theology and the, uh, of the second commandment, at least in the reform numbering tradition, which we'll follow. We'll take out that uh, no other gods as a second commandment. And we'll also look, time permitting, about public debates surrounding whether the Ten Commandments should be displayed in courtrooms and, and other sort of settings. Now you might think, why include that here on the discussion of uh, the commandment about idolatry? Well, my contention is that these issues are deeply related. And I'll say more about that at the end of today. If not, I might leave you with a teaser uh, to come back for next week, uh, which, is a, which is to say I might run out of time because I plan too much. Any case. So, the key interpretive question about the commandment that you shall, not make any other, uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol, the key interpretive question in understanding this commandment is what is meant by the term idol? What is an idol? An image? Okay, I was going to get some shout-out answers. So an image? Are ah. Something you prioritize. Does it have to be an image? So are all images idols, would be one question. And are all idols images? What else would you throw out for meanings, definitions of idols? Something you worship. Something you worship. OK. A goal, yeah, potentially a goal. Maybe a goal gone wrong, or a goal that becomes too consuming. That's a great idea. It, it originally, in the historical context, they had in mind something very physical, which we'll explain in a moment. Through time, as we'll see at the end, you get to where, where Patrick is going. This kind of more figurative sense of an idol as something that kind of grabs your attention or maybe consumes you in a way that maybe is unhealthy or unwarranted. So maybe the trophy itself, or we might even go so far, and I hope a lightning bolt from the south doesn't come down and strike me, we might even say that sports itself is a type of cultural idol, or idol that consumes many of us, especially when you start considering how much money is involved. Did you know, just as a side note, as a, a point of fact on that, the strength coach for the University of Alabama football team, the strength coach, make $600,000. He's strong. <laughs> Starting faculty make about 45. Yeah. Ah, so, so maybe, maybe the lottery's the idol, or maybe the thing behind the lottery, the money, is an idol. That's a very New Testament idea, which we'll get to. Let me bring us back to the Old Testament. You guys are, are really getting a sense of this idea. Many of us know the term idol through the KJV. In the KJV, this commandment says, thou shalt not make graven images. Now, 
I don't know what a graven, graven image is. That graven part, I know what an image is. The graven part might be a little confusing. A bit closer to the Hebrew, I think, is the Jewish Publication Society sculpted image. Sculpted image, which probably means the same thing as graven. Um, the noun, or the word in Hebrew, pestle, that, that, that gets translated as idol in NRSV or graven image in the KJV, um, is actually derived from a verb, pasal, that means literally to carve or hew out of stone. So literally, it just means something carved or hewn out of stone. So Bruce, to your point, they had in mind something very specific materially. Now, a lot of different things could be carved or hewn out of stones. Not everything carved or hewn need be an idol. But in the context here, it seems to suggest that what is most likely in view is a carved or hewn statue of a deity. A carved or hewn statue of a deity, probably from wood or stone, perhaps overlaid with gold. If it's made out of wood, it's probably overlaid with gold and other precious metals. And most likely, it was in the form of an anthrop... It was in a human-like form. It was anthropomorphic in form. That is, it was an image of a god that had human features carved out of wood or stone. And in fact, there's ample archaeological evidence of just this sort of thing. Here you see a bronze statue from Rosh Shamra, which is present-day Syria. It most likely represents the god Baal, and that thing that he, his, his uh, arm extended, Baal was the god of the thunderstorm. And so what we think is that at one point, there was like a lightning bolt thing in his hand, probably gold, that someone probably stole before the, uh, this statue found its way into a museum. So this likely is Baal. Again, you can tell it's a human-like form, carved, um, or in this case, kind of sculpted out of bronze. Um, or we also have this carved stone uh, relief um, from Persepolis, which is the ceremonial capital of the ancient Achaemenid Empire in modern-day southwest Iran. Uh, this is the god Ahura Mazda, and as you can tell, Ahura Mazda is a winged god. See, these wings are sprouting from, uh, from this ring that kind of forms part of his body. He has a human-like head um, and arms and such, but he has this ring-like body with bird-like appendages, wings, and feathers coming out. Now, I have a question for some of you. This is a Hura Mazda. How many of you drove here in a Mazda? <laughs> I'm not joking. The symbol for Mazda, Mazda is an abbreviation for Ahura Mazda, the Persian chief god. And even the logo of the Mazda, this is the, this is the ring, and these are the wings of the ring. So all of you Yahweh worshipers who uh, drive a Mazda may look to uh, trade that baby in uh, for something more godlike. I don't know what that godlike thing is, a Ford, a Chevy, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, just a point of trivia there that actually a Mazda comes from a Hura Mazda. Or there are also these uh, terracotta figurines, uh, thousands of which have been found in the land of Israel. Catch this. Countless of these have been found in the land of Israel from the very time that, that the nation of Israel would have existed. Thousands of these. Now, we don't know exactly what they are, but the, probably the best hypothesis is that these are uh, female deities. These are goddesses, and we found these in Israelite homes. Wait a second, you said. I thought the Israelites worshipped Yahweh. Maybe not everyone did. Or maybe they didn't do it so well. So, 
pestles or graven images or sculpted images were in fact quite common in the ancient world. They were a central part of almost every religion in the ancient Near Eastern uh, context. But here is the main question for us. Does the second commandment, and, and the biblical author behind it, does he have in mind, when he says don't make a graven image, an image of a foreign god, or does he have in mind an image of Yahweh? What is this commandment about? Is it saying, okay, don't make an image, Mike, of the god Baal, or rather is it don't make, Sally, an image, I'm sorry I'm pointing you guys out for this, don't make an image of Yahweh. Well, both are possible, but in fact, I think the larger context and witness of the Old Testament suggests it's the latter. That is, don't make an image of Yahweh. The first commandment says you got to worship Yahweh, not the other gods. The second commandment tells you how you should worship Yahweh. That is, by not making images. Whatever you do, don't make an image of Yahweh. This actually um, seems to be the case in a, a particular biblical text from 1 Kings 12. And I don't know if this is a familiar text to you, uh, but this is right after Israel has split into two kingdoms, a northern part, which sometimes is just called Israel, and a southern part, which is called Judah. Uh, after this point, uh, the, uh, basically there are two parts to the nation, and there's a bit of a power struggle between the two parts of the nation. And a new king, Jeroboam, uh, takes control in the north, and his goal is not to reject Yahweh. Jeroboam is a follower of Yahweh. What Jeroboam is concerned about, as any good political leader would be, is the loyalty of his followers. He wants to make sure that the people in the north, the people he was king over, didn't defect and move south and join King Rehoboam, uh, the king of Judah. So this is what Jeroboam does. It's a longer text, but I think worth considering. Then Jeroboam said to himself, Now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David. He's referring to his kingdom, the north. If this people continues to go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, the heart of this people will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. So he's talking about Yahweh followers, and he's worried about them going south to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh there. So what does he do? 128, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Remember, these are Yahweh worshipers. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, which is in the way south. He set one in Dan, which is the way north. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship Yahweh before the one at Bethel and before the other as far as Dan. The problem here is not who the Israelites were worshiping, but where and how. This was the problem, according to uh, uh, 1 Kings. On the one hand, there's a problem that they're not going to Jerusalem to worship. They're going to temples in Dan and Bethel. That's the wrong place to worship. Right God, wrong place. We never would talk about such things today uh, between churches. Uh, but they did back then. Um, on the other hand, the other problem they did is that they were using images of God. They were representing Yahweh with a bull. That was a problem. You were not supposed to represent Yahweh with a bull. So they were going to the wrong place and using the wrong thing, even though they were worshiping the right God. And here the prophet calls that a sin. This is about an improper manner of worship. 
not the improper object of worship. But this leads then to a second question, and related. What's wrong with an image of Yahweh? Why can't you make an image of Yahweh? Let's say you are, David is really devoted to Yahweh, right? So he's got commandment one, sealed, done, great. Why can't he just make an image of Yahweh? What's wrong with that theologically? Well, interestingly enough, the Bible never tells us. Now, we have a couple reasons. I want to name four possibilities. Um, but we don't really know. Maybe it's one of them. Maybe it's some combination of them. But here are four possible reasons why it was a problem to make an image of Yahweh. First is the potential idea that God is invisible, that God is immaterial, that it's impossible to make an image of God simply because there's no image to make. God, by nature, is invisible and immaterial. God transcends the material world, is inherently not seeable, this is a belief that has pervaded Protestant and particularly Reformed theologies for at least 500 years and goes back uh, long before that. It might even be implied by Scripture itself. Consider Deuteronomy 4, 15, and 16. Since you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. So God's speaking to Moses. Horeb is Mount Sinai. So he's recalling the, maybe the burning bush incident or maybe he's recalling the, the moment the Ten Commandments were given. Since you saw no form when the God spoke to you at Sinai or Horeb out of fire, take care and watch yourselves closely so that you do not act corruptly by making an idol, by making a graven or sculpted image for yourselves in the form of any figure. What this passage might be saying is, since you didn't account, encounter God in visual form, don't then go and make a visual form by, that you use in worship. God's invisible. Now, the problem with this view is on numerous occasions, the Bible does speak about Moses, the elders, and even the people themselves beholding Yahweh. Other texts seem to think that God is visible in some form. Isaiah has a vision of the Lord in the temple. Ezekiel sees this, this mobile throne in the air with something like the form of a human in it. I don't know what Ezekiel saw, but he saw something. God wasn't invisible to Isaiah and Ezekiel. It might be a mystery what they saw, but they're not invisible. Even elsewhere in Deuteronomy, even in this passage, Moses saw something. He saw fire. That fire somehow symbolized God. Now, maybe it wasn't God's self there in the fire, but still, it wasn't as if Moses had his eyes closed or Moses looked and literally couldn't see anything. So there's, this might be an idea, but the Bible at least is not consistent in saying that God is completely invisible or completely immaterial. A second possibility is that somehow you would mistakenly uh, make an incorrect representation of God. That is, you can make an image of God, but it's really hard to do, so I'm afraid that if David even tried really hard, he might not get Yahweh's portrait quite right. This might be implied uh, in Isaiah, um, oh, that's not what I wanted. Uh, this is out of order, sorry. Let me circle back to this. That's what I wanted. Uh, in Isaiah 40, 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? The idea is something like this. If I said, Dale, I need you to draw, draw me a picture of the perfect sunset. The perfect sunset, not a flaw in it. Could you accomplish that? Could any artist accomplish a picture of a perfect sunset? Well, the same idea might be possible here. Because God is incomparable, how could you possibly come up with the right 
image for that God. So it's not so much that God's invisible, but God's vision is so spectacular, so perfect, that no human artist could capture it. Josephus, a Jewish philosopher around the time of Jesus, echoes a similar idea when he says that since no one has seen God, it would be impossible to create an image that adequately represents what he looks like. Josephus thought God could have a form, but because no one had seen it, no one could really get exactly what it looks like. You guys with me so far? Okay, third, uh, an era of substitution. This Actually, I need to go back because I had these slides in the wrong order here. An era of substitution. Um, there was a fear that if someone had an image of God, the worshiper would forget that she's looking at an image and think that she's actually looking at God himself. In this view, um, the image begins to take the place of or substitutes for the actual thing it represents. Now, it might seem, this, this idea might seem very strange to us. How could you forget that you're looking at an image as opposed to the actual thing? I don't often look at a picture of my two-year-old son, Leo, and forget that it's just a picture of him. I don't rock it. I don't feed it a banana in the morning. I don't sit down with a picture of Leo and watch Curious George when he wakes up. I don't do that. I know that I'm looking at a picture of Leo. So this might seem silly to us, even in a world of, of 3D graphics and holograms and all these different things, we're actually pretty good at distinguishing between a picture and the thing which it pictures. However, in the ancient world, it wasn't so strange. It was a real concern based on a common theology of images in other religions. Almost every other religion around ancient Israel thought that the images of, de of deities were not mere pictures. Rather, they thought that an image of a deity, in a very real way, manifested that deity's power and presence. So much so, that when you went to battle with another nation, the way you defeated its gods, sorry, I'm, where is this slide here? There it is. When you went to battle with other nations, the way you defeated its other gods is that you took its images of God, of their god, and you abducted it. Because when you abducted the image from your enemy, they lost power. The god literally, in their minds, departed from the city. And this is an ancient picture from a wall relief that depicts these little things are images of gods, and here, these guys, who I believe are, are Assyrians, are carrying away the images of the gods of their enemies. So much so that sometimes when we went to battle with your enemies, you would find the image of that people's god, and you would take a chisel, and you would mar it. You would black out its eyes, you would knock off its nose, you would cut off its hand, because there was a real belief that in causing damage to the image, you were literally damaging the God. Now, we don't treat images this way by and large today. But there was a real fear that an image then could substitute for the real God. Finally, um, there's the possibility... There we go. Um, one for, the fourth possibility is that in the theology of the Old Testament, there was an image of God. But the only acceptable image of God was what? Humanity. Going back to the idea in Genesis 1.26 that humanity was created in the image of God. In contrast to other ancient Near Eastern societies where the image of the king was thought to be the image of God. Ancient Near Eastern rulers, when they had their images made, 
there was an idea that they literally resembled the gods. So in the ancient Near East, there was an image of God, and it was in the form of a king. In the Old Testament, there's an image of God, but that image is democratized to all people, male and female. All humanity is made in the image of God. So in a way, this theology might, in a sense, um, undermine this sort of uh, royal ideology common throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. It paints a different picture of God, but it also paints a different picture of humanity. So in some, then, it's fairly consistent throughout the Old, uh, fairly consistent throughout the Old Testament is the notion that God should not be worshipped by means of an image. We don't know the exact reason, and it's likely multiple reasons are at play, but in any event, the notion of idolatry, that is, the, the worship of idols, originally applied to the use of an image of Yahweh. You guys with me so far? Any questions at this point? Uh, Genesis 1.26 is that passage where we hear about humanity being created in the image of God. Okay, third, and the final question here. How does the idea of idolatry develop over time? How does it develop over time? I'm going to skip some of this, but I want to kind of give you the highlights for sake of time. Uh, in the Old Testament, the idea of idolatry eventually becomes an umbrella term that is applied to any act of infidelity of Israel toward its God. Idolatry in the Old Testament is a relational category. It has to do with breaking an intimate and exclusive relationship. So any act of ancient Israel that violated their exclusive relationship with God constituted idolatry. And so perhaps not uh, surprising in light of this relational language, one of the things that we find in the prophets is, is their tendency to speak about idolatry through the metaphor of adultery. They often compare Israel's wandering from its God as an act of adultery within a marriage. Now, I, um, I'm going to skip the passage, but Hosea is the text to look to uh, for, this, for this imagery. Um, it's an appropriate metaphor insofar as it captures the seriousness of idolatry, and insofar as it captures how idolatry shatters the covenantal relationship between the people and God. I also feel free that I have to name, though, that this is a problematic metaphor for many reasons, not least of which because God occasionally is pictured as humiliating and even abusing the wayward spouse. And that spouse almost always is a woman. Though it's talking about Israel, they use a, metaphor, a feminine metaphor. And so it's problematic theologically and ethically on many levels. And to be sure, the Old Testament was not, um, was not advocating for uh, spousal violence. Um, the church today must not only reject the spouse abuse under any circumstances, but also should be cautious about imagery that paints sin in feminine terms. To be sure, anyone could commit idolatry, just as anyone might commit adultery. So it's not in any way kind of gender-specific, but the language leads in that direction in the Old Testament, so we need to be cautious about it. So that's the trajectory in the Old Testament, idolatry as adultery. In the New Testament, uh, well, let me say this, in comparison to the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, the New Testament contains far fewer references to idols and idolatry, and that might seem strange. Why would the New Testament have far less to say about idols and idolatry? Well, the reason these terms are completely absent from the Gospels 
um, and cluster mainly in Acts and the Pauline epistles and a little bit in Revelation, is that idols were exclusively associated with Gentiles in the New Testament. A Jewish person is never in the New Testament accused of idolatry. In fact, the assumption was that a Jewish person, and all, almost all early converts to Christianity were, of course, Jewish, um, the assumption was that Judaism was a religion where idols did not exist. Now, whether that was true in practice or not is another question, but certainly Jews had the reputation of not being followers of idols. In contrast, uh, Greeks, or Gentiles in particular, were associated with idolatry. For instance, when Paul enters Athens, he finds a city full of idols, Acts 17, 16. In 1 Peter 4, 3, don't let anyone tell you I didn't give you New Testament in this course. In 1 Peter 4, 3, idolatry is listed among the things, quote, the Gentiles like to do. And Paul claims in 1 Corinthians 12, 2, that when Gentile believers were still pagans, they, quote, were enticed and led astray to idols. So it was a particularly a Gentile thing. The second thing you'll note about the New Testament is that idolatry is often listed alongside of other vices and sins, like impurity, strife, jealousy, anger, drunkenness, and so forth. And we find these in these catalogs of sins in, Gen uh, in Galatians 5, 19-21, 1 Peter 4, Colossians 3, 5. We find idol or idolatry kind of grouped together with a bunch of other things that we would call ethically suspect or morally suspect. Uh, Idolatry is described, along with these other things, as, quote, work of the flesh and, quote, earthly things. Uh, as an instrument of, <coughs> excuse me, ethical instruction, these lists deploy the concept of idolatry as a way of characterizing a manner of life that is inconsistent with the fruits of the Spirit, as articulated in Genesis, uh, not Genesis, Galatians 5. However, as an ethical problem, idolatry in the New Testament is most often associated with greed, with money. That's not something the Old Testament does. A New Testament innovation is to specifically take the idea of idolatry and connect it to greed. Uh, Colossians 3.5 is a great example. Put to death, uh, Paul says, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, and then as a parenthetical aside, which is idolatry. Idolatry here is not understood as the worship of another god. It's understood as one's proclivity to follow after money. This is the same in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 24, where the Gospel writer says, uh, in Jesus' words, you cannot serve God and mammon or wealth. Money is set up as a type of god in the New Testament. This is suggestive, and, and we'll end with this, and we'll have to do our public display next week. This is suggestive of a later theological development. So after the early church, the concept of idolatry continues to develop, and the where it develops is in a broader and more figurative, figurative sense. In his larger catechism, Martin Luther writes, quote, whenever or whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. For Martin Luther, it's who you are devoted to. That is an idol, or that is a God. While still rooted in the Hebrew Bible's notion of an idol as an image, a physical image of a deity, Luther's perspective is indicative of the type of figurative understanding of idolatry that is common in contemporary theological reflection. 
In this view, an idol may consist of an improper interest in money, power, success, prestige, sex, etc. It is just as likely to be associated with inappropriate beliefs and teachings within the church as it is with pagans or outsiders. That is, idolatry becomes a particular thing that all Christians must face. In many respects, idolatry functions as a measure of orthodoxy, a way of distinguishing between acceptable and unacceptable forms of worship, lifestyles, teaching, and even interpretations of scripture. Thus, it is possible then to follow the Puritans in referring to, quote, internal idolatry, or Francis Bacon in referring to, quote, idols of the mind, or, or even uh, Jean-Luc Marion, who speaks of, quote, conceptual idolatry. That is, idolatry can become internalized and conceptualized as ideas. Indeed, in its most robust theological articulation, almost anything can be an idol, from racism, sexism, consumerism, the entertainment industry, sports, and so forth. If it threatens to displace or distort the centrality of God, in matters of faith and practice. What this means, I think, and in closing, is that the first two commandments, thou shalt have no other gods and no others, are as al uh, no idols, are as alive today as theological issues in the church as anything else. These texts have not somehow passed away. They're not somehow archaic. They, they are meaningful and relevant to our lives of faith insofar as God continues still to call us to make God a priority in our lives and to avoid the allure of idols that might distract us and distort our image of who God is. Next week, as we begin, I want to take up the issue of the, the debates around the public display of the Ten Commandments, again in part because it is an important cultural issue, but also because in the end, I think the issue of the public display of the Ten Commandments has everything to do with the concept of idolatry. I hope you'll join us then. Thank you.